Well, we have been working our way through the book of Daniel. Daniel is one of the prophets in the Old Testament. And our text this morning is Daniel chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. Of course, this is a a well-known passage, and uh, many of you, uh, I'm sure, if if you're like me, it's it's one of your favorites. This is one of my favorite passages in in the whole Bible. We're going to be looking at it uh, for a couple of Sundays in a row. Today, we're sort of laying out the the groundwork here of, of what's going on in this passage that we can understand uh, a little bit more what these men are up against. Our text then is Daniel chapter 3 verses 1 to 7 and as always uh, I'd, op- I'd encourage you to follow along in your Bibles as I read and then also as I preach through it we'll be looking at different phrases and words and, and that type of thing. If, if you don't have a Bible with you but would like to follow along you can use the Bible in the chairs in front of you. Underneath you'll find the passage on page 739. Daniel 3 verses 1 to 7. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Chapter 3 opens somewhat abruptly and somewhat strangely, I think. It, It opens immediately with King Nebuchadnezzar making an image of gold. Our text calls this an image. Uh, it can also be translated idol. Same, same word, image or idol, and it's the same word that was used for the image that Nebuchadnezzar had dreamt about in chapter 2. If you think back to that image uh, that he dreamt about, it's important uh, in, the sense, in, in a sense to remember what that image looked like to see what it is he's doing here. Remember that image was actually a statue of a man. Uh, The text said it was terrifying to begin with, just to look at. Uh, But 
It was made of different substances, you recall. The head was of gold, but that was the only part of the image that was gold. The, the rest of it were in, kind of in descending order of value. The, the second part, the chest and, and arms, was of silver, and then it was kind of a, a middle of bronze, and then the legs were of iron, and the feet were iron mixed with clay. And when Daniel had interpreted the dream and told Nebuchadnezzar about it, he, he told Nebuchadnezzar that, uh, that the golden head represented him, the king, Nebuchadnezzar, and, and the kingdom of Babylon. And of course, what we saw in that dream was that there was a stone I guess an unassuming looking stone at first that was cut out without human hands that it fell on the feet of clay, the, 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 probably the weakest part of, of this statue, and that when those feet uh, disintegrated and, and uh, fell apart, the rest of the statue in turn came tumbling down, and all of it, including the head of gold, was rendered dust that the wind blew away. The stone, meanwhile, Daniel said, was the kingdom of God that grew to become a mountain. Now, you'll notice that this image, this idol that he sets up, is 60 cubits in height and six cubits in breadth. Now, scholars say that uh, I mentioned, I think, in the first sermon that I preached in Daniel, uh, some scholars who can't believe that this book prophesied so accurately things that happen in the future, uh, believe that Daniel was written much later. They believe it was written after these kingdoms came to prominence and that it was basically pretended to be prophesying about these. But one of the things that scholars point out here is the fact that it is using uh, the, 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 this, this uh, statue that is made, this image of gold that is made, is 90 feet tall by 9 feet wide is actually uh, another, um, not, not that we need this uh, to, I mean, we believe that the God of the Bible exists, that he does prophesy and that he does predict the future. Uh, but if you're looking for proof that this was written during the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, during the era and the reign of Babylon, that's good proof because the Babylonians uh, used, according to scholars, a, a, a numerical system that kind of centered around threes, sixes, and nines. And so what we see here is that that's exactly how the, the dimensions of this thing is. It, it's 90 feet tall by nine feet wide. Now, this could possibly be a statue of a man, but it would be a, an odd, I mean, if it, if it were, it wouldn't have very good dimensions. And so most likely, this is more like an obelisk like the, the Washington Monument, something like that. And it's made, notice, entirely of gold. Now again, as scholars point out, this is probably almost certainly not solid gold. The, the cost of that would have been way too great, and it would have been too heavy, and it couldn't have sat upright on the plane. So most likely, it is not solid gold, but gold-plated entirely. And still, very costly and very impressive, especially out in the middle of the desert with the sun glinting off of the gold. Now, the text makes it very clear that the maker of this idol is King Nebuchadnezzar himself. Now, no doubt, Nebuchadnezzar 
had artisans that did the work, but he was the one who came up with the idea, and he is the one who sanctioned it and commanded it and had all of the people and the workers gather together the gold that was necessary and all of the, uh, all of the, the necessary tools. He was the one. You see here in this one verse, it says, he made an image of gold, that he set it up. But in fact, if you just read through our seven verses, you'll see five times repeated in just this short span of verses, five times repeated the phrase, the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. In fact, you see a lot of repetition in this passage uh, with the, 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 the instruments being used, with the, with the different people in charge gathering together, and you wonder, well, what what is with all the repetition? Well, it matters. As I told the kids on uh, whatever, whatever night that was, Wednesday night or whatever, when we had our uh, little studies and snacks at the dinner table, I, I, we went through that and we, we highlighted how many times different phrases are repeated. Now, the reason for this repetition of King Nebuchadnezzar again and again and again is again to, to, to point out and to highlight and to impress upon us that this idol is a man-made idol. And as we read this morning, as we recited our call to worship, as we read all throughout the Old Testament, man-made idols are ultimately nothing. They are powerless, ultimately, before the God of heaven. And so what we're seeing here is this, again, conflict being set up. We see that the image is set up on the plain of Dura and in the province of Babylon. And all of this, again, when we combine all of this information, it sets up for us not only an idol, but more importantly, a conflict. Because King Nebuchadnezzar is directly opposing the dream. He's by doing this directly opposing the dream and the interpretation that Daniel had given him, that the God of heaven had given him. In his dream, Nebuchadnezzar was told that he and his kingdom was represented by the head of gold, but the rest of the statue was made of other substances. So what does King Nebuchadnezzar do? He's told that he, when he dies that his kingdom, which is just a head of gold, is going to be succeeded by lesser even kingdoms that are going to take over and begin to rule in his stead. And so King Nebuchadnezzar decides that he doesn't want his kingdom to end. He's countering that. He's countering it by making an image now entirely of gold. Essentially, what Nebuchadnezzar is trying to do is set things up so that he can say, my kingdom will not be destroyed. My kingdom will be everlasting. My kingdom is the one kingdom that will never be replaced. And he's doing this by placing this image, not only of entire, entirely made of gold, but placing it in a plain where everyone can gather and he can gather all people from different tribes, tongues, nations together to worship him and him alone. Well, not alone, as we'll see, but primarily. And we see that it's important here that it's located in the plain of Dora in the province of Babylon. This is huge. It's huge because, once again, we see that something that Nebuchadnezzar is doing is connecting what he's doing with the Tower of Babel. 
You recall in chapter one of this, when he invaded, when Nebuchadnezzar went and took these exiles, Daniel being one and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being uh, others, when he invaded uh, the land of Judah and took them, it says that he also went and, and took the vessels of the house of God and brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. And I said, the land of Shinar, the fact that that phrase was used was important because it harkened back to the Tower of Babel. In Genesis 11, we see, now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there, and they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. They had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar, and they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. They were building a tower in the plain in Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar is building a tower in the plain in Babylon. They were making a name for themselves. He is making a name for himself. And they, strangely enough, were kind of uniting all peoples and languages that God ended up stopping and separating and dispersing, as you recall. Nebuchadnezzar is, in a sense, trying to reverse what happened at Babylon, at Babel there. He is, in a sense, uniting all peoples and languages in this worshiping of his idol. What's important as well for our text here, and for what's about to happen, is that he's building this image in the province of Babylon. And that's important because if you go back to chapter 2, we see that when Daniel interprets the dream, Nebuchadnezzar puts Daniel essentially as his right-hand man uh, in charge of all of, of Babylon, and then coming in the wake of Daniel's ascension are his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, they've been given positions of authority and power and prestige and position, not because of their own doing, but because of Daniel's doing. They are now in this position, and what we see at the end of chapter 2, it says, Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. So these three men that are now in this position that they didn't ask for, that they didn't fight for, that they didn't work for, that they probably never really wanted in the first place, are now in a position where they are in charge of this province. And here he is setting up an idol in the province of Babylon. And so we see this conflict being set up. It's a conflict between King Nebuchadnezzar and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But more importantly, as we will see next week, it is a conflict set up between the false gods of Babylon and the God of heaven. Now, as I read chapter 3, the beginning of this, I thought to myself, and you might be thinking, wait a second, what about Nebuchadnezzar's claim at the end of chapter 2? What happened here? When we go back to, to the end of chapter 2, we see that Nebuchadnezzar 
overwhelmed by Daniel's ability to interpret his dream, he says, truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings. He's a revealer of mysteries, for, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. And so you read that, and no less than like six sentences later, we see that he's doing this. And you think to yourself, well, what happened? Because clearly, this isn't some minor mental lapse on the part of Nebuchadnezzar. This is a, a thoroughly involved thing. This isn't one day he kind of has, falls away a little bit. No, this is a massive endeavor where he is clearly in some kind of rebellion against the God of heaven. Everything that he's doing here is a huge pushback against everything that would honor God. I think we can say a few things about this. First of all, I think we can say that Nebuchadnezzar, as we can see from this text, was in some sense a professor of faith in God, but was not a possessor of faith in God. Not yet. Notice here that whatever Nebuchadnezzar says, I mean, he, he, he makes some, again, amazing claims about God, but, but there's no repentance at all on his part. No sign of repentance for sin. Now, you recall when Jesus came to earth and he began his ministry, he began by preaching and proclaiming. And what did he begin by proclaiming? Well, it wasn't God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. When Jesus came to earth, he began by proclaiming, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Scripture says that we are sinners, that what we need is salvation from sin, and that part of that saving faith involves repenting. It involves turning from our previous life and turning to Christ. And Nebuchadnezzar doesn't show any sign of that. And, and notice as well that, that there's no embrace here of the God of Daniel as the only God. I mean, sure, he makes, again, a great claim about this God, but, but Nebuchadnezzar is in a world of pagan idolatry where many gods are worshipped and where you can certainly worship one God alongside of many. But the God of the Bible says, you shall have no other gods before me. And when he says before there, he doesn't mean you can have plenty of other gods as long as you worship me first. That word before means you shall have no other gods in my presence. I am to be your only God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. The God of the Bible is very clear that he and he alone is God. And Nebuchadnezzar has not acknowledged that. He acknowledges that Daniel's God is powerful, but he's just one of many gods. And notice even along with that statement that he does something very odd. Again, something that any believer and follower and worshiper of the God of heaven would never do. He falls down and practically worships Daniel. He offers up an offering to Daniel and bows down to him. And so whatever Nebuchadnezzar has here as some kind of, again, professor of faith, <coughs> it is some kind of odd syncretistic belief system at this point. Scripture says in order to be a possessor of faith, the Holy Spirit must be at work in your heart. It's not a bare declaration. 
Jesus says in John 3, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. You may recall the parable of the sower. One of, I don't remember who, I think it was Andrew brought up when we were doing our study, he brought up the parable of the sower. That Jesus says, seed falls, it's the same seed, it's the same gospel. But the only soil that bears fruit is good soil. Other soils may look like there's something going on, and in the end, it's crowded out. And I think all of this shows that Nebuchadnezzar's true priorities at this point in his life, his true priorities, his giving of his time and his effort and his money is not ultimately to honor and to worship the God of heaven, but it's to honor and worship himself. That's where his priorities lay. I think also, as we look at this text, one thing that, that we can realize here is that it would have been wise at this point for Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego not to hear and see Nebuchadnezzar make this one proclamation and immediately put all of their eggs in his basket as somehow he is going to be now kind of the sovereign ruler of their lives. I think... Sometimes, especially today, as our society gets more and more political, as politics kind of invades every corner of life, sometimes I think we as Christians can hear a politician quote the Bible and suddenly kind of put our eggs in that politician's basket. And I think, since I've been paying attention to politics for years now, I think every politician that I've ever seen has at some point or other used the Bible and quoted it to support some position or other. But I think what you see is that oftentimes they'll quote the Bible to support their position, they'll make a, a statement and, and, and kind of make some kind of, uh, 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 kind of proclamation that they, that they follow the Bible or, they, or they're a Christian, and then, and then they'll turn around and go and do something horrendous in the name of Christ. <coughs> I think we also see here that A, a, a profession of faith, not only can it, not, uh, can it be a bare profession, but someone who professes this can quickly turn around and do something the exact opposite of that. Scholars, a lot of them think that a lot of time probably passed, I think, again, because of the shock that Nebuchadnezzar would so quickly do this. I don't think so. In fact, I think he probably turned around and did this right away because it probably took a lot of time to get this whole thing organized I don't think much time passed between chapter 2 and chapter 3. I, I think if we read Scripture and we're honest with ourselves, we can see that even believers who do have the Holy Spirit can quickly turn away and turn into idolatry sometimes. I think of myself. I remember as you know, a boy reading the Bible or having the Bible read to me and, and thinking how ridiculous it was for Israel to see these amazing things that God did and so quickly turn away from the God that saved them or the God that delivered them in this amazing way and, and immediately turn to idols. And I used to think, how can somebody do that? And as I've grown in my own walk with Christ, I see that in my own life every week. As I see and I recognize and I acknowledge the work 
that God has done in my life, the things that he has done for me, the blessings that he's given to me, and so often how I can turn away and once again follow idols. Nevertheless, all of these things being the case, because of Nebuchadnezzar's actions, he has now set up, again, without them doing anything, a very difficult situation for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I mean, their whole lives, in one sense, as far as we have seen, has been nothing but difficulty. I mean, their lives were already made extremely difficult simply by being exiled to Babylon. And now, they're put in a position, in a position where they're trying, think of the situation that they're in. They're trying as best they can to serve as best they can, as honorably, as respectfully, as well as possible, a pagan king, a pagan king who is an idolater, who invaded their hometown and who brought them into exile, and who is no follower of Yahweh. But as I mentioned before, they aren't called to be as God called them into exile, as he led them away. This, again, wasn't their choice. What did he say through the prophet Jeremiah to the exiles? He said, look, these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and prayed to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. And if you recall back, I said they were not called to be fully assimilated and become completely Babylonian. That wasn't God's intent. That may have been Nebuchadnezzar's intent. That wasn't God's. They also, however, weren't called to be anarchists. They weren't called there to try to disrupt and destroy the nation where they were sent. They were called, as I mentioned, to be ambassadors. They were called to be citizens of one country, the heavenly country, living in another country, and trying to be the best citizens that they can be on behalf of the country where they're living while having their ultimate allegiance still to the king of the sending country. They have tried, nonetheless, uh, I'm sure, to be ambassadors as newly arrived exiles. I'm sure they struggled and tried to be ambassadors as college students in the University of Babylon, and now they're trying and striving to be ambassadors as heads of state, as people who have uh, are high-ranking government officials. And Christian, that's what we are called to be. Wh whatever calling God has for us, and we, we've all had different callings at different stages in our life, whether it be a college student or, or whether it be this job or that job, now I, my calling is to be a pastor. Prior to that, I had many other callings out in the world. But whatever our calling is, our ultimate calling in that job is to be a Christian is to be an ambassador for Christ. <clears throat> now, the text doesn't say it. <clears throat> but if you think about it, I, I wonder, and I, I think it's, it's quite probable, that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego 
being the heads over all of the affairs that happen in the province of Babylon must have been at some level intimately, intimately involved in the construction and setting up of this idol. I don't know how else, I mean, there's really no conflict until they are called to bow down and worship. But prior to that, the construction and the setting up of this thing takes place, and they're the ones in charge of the province of Babylon. So I would think logic tells me that King Nebuchadnezzar called them to his side and said, I want you to find gold, I want you to find artisans, and here's what I want you to build for me. And they went ahead and did it because they were trying to serve the king under whom they worked. Now, verses 2 through 5 tell us what's going on here. Notice that it isn't enough for Nebuchadnezzar to have the idol built. He wants complete conformity by everyone. Notice in verses 2 through 5 the, the kind of totalizing language that is used here. Again, you see all, all, all. It just keeps being pounded into you. All the people who are in power are represented. And this list, according to scholars, kind of goes down the chain of authority. So whereas Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego kind of, I guess, have sort of ultimate authority here, gathered here to to stand before and and worship at this idol are all levels of government authority, uh, counselors, justices, magistrates, treasurers, uh, satraps, prefects, and, and it just goes down. Notice as well, it's not just the people in power. All the people who are not in power are represented. You see here, all the people. What You are commanded all peoples, nations, and languages. Notice here, too, you, you have this cacophony of music uh, being represented here. And, and we were laughing about how awful this little orchestra must have sounded. I, can't, I don't know. We don't know what all of these different instruments are, but I can't imagine they sounded very good together. So really, in one sense, you could look at, at, at these three sections here, and you could, you could say, if we want to sum it up, that, that all aspects of society are kind of represented. You, you have the leaders, the politicians. You have your friends and neighbors are represented. And you even have, in a sense, the arts and entertainment are represented. You, you, you have the artists, the musicians coming together. The whole of society is represented here. And all of them are standing before the image that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Now that by itself, you can only imagine, would put huge pressure on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and anyone else who wants to worship God and God alone. There's always been, from the start of the church, pressure on God's people to conform to this world. That's why Paul says in Romans 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. But that pressure to conform, it can be ratcheted up when it seems that all of society 
is joining in on this thing that you're being pressured to acknowledge or to join. We see here that there's not just kind of societal pressure, though. The, the pressure to conform is increased by multiple levels because it is accompanied by punishment for not conforming. Verse 6, whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And Nebuchadnezzar wasn't joking. We can see, if we just go back to chapter 2, uh, how crazy the sky was because he wanted to, uh, he in fact sent out orders to go and kill and dismember and tear limb from limb every wise man in his kingdom and destroy their entire family and render their house a dung pile. It was only Daniel and his being an intercessor that stopped that from happening. But we also see in Scripture, in Jeremiah 20, 29, we see that <coughs> in verse 22, because of them, this curse shall be used by all the exiles from Judah and Babylon. The Lord make you like Zedekiah and Ahab, whom the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, roasted in the fire. So Nebuchadnezzar is not joking around. I mean, can you imagine working for this guy? Like, imagine, I mean, we probably all had bosses that we didn't really get along with. I mean, imagine him being your boss. That one mistake and, you know, you don't know what's, it's like, Bob, did I tell you to have those files on my desk today? What happened? Well, I I got a little, I, you know, my son had a soccer game. All right, start the fire. <laughs> See you, Bob. All joking aside, Nebuchadnezzar's not joking. Nebuchadnezzar is a megalomaniac who will burn people alive if they don't obey him. So what do we see? The people know this. Verse 7, therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Just imagine that sight. Imagine seeing everyone, everyone that has been gathered there immediately on the sound bow down and worship this idol the kind of pressure that you would have on you. And that's why I can't wait until next week's passage when we see what the response of these men is. The question that I ask myself this week is, do I really think that suddenly, in, in the last six months or so, however long it took to, to build this thing, maybe it was a year, who knows, in the time that it took to build this obelisk and set it up and gather everyone, do I really think that everyone there suddenly got an epiphany and they could not wait to bow down and worship this idol? That suddenly everyone there just all of a sudden thought to themselves, Nebuchadnezzar's God is the best God I've ever seen, and I can't wait to bow down and worship this. I don't think so. I don't, I don't think that happened at all, but, but you see how quickly everyone jumps on board with an idea. As soon as they discover 
that jumping on board with that idea doesn't really hurt them very much personally. As soon as they see that, that everyone else seems to agree with it, and as, and as soon as they see that there's some kind of punishment attached to not doing it. I mean, if you have no allegiance higher than yourself, why wouldn't you do that? You know, as we think about today, brothers and sisters, do, do I really think Do I really think that suddenly, in in the last two or three years, suddenly every single one of us has has abandoned reason and logic and and everything that we've known for the past, since recorded human history, and actually now believe that men can become women and women can become men simply because they declare it? Do I really think we all believe that? I doubt it. But... When you feel like it doesn't really harm you very much personally to proclaim it, when you see that everyone else is doing it, and when you perceive that there is some kind of punishment for not proclaiming it, well, it's not too hard to see. We see it happen here. See, people can go along to get along. We see especially that's difficult when what society is saying is you can have your God as long as you have ours too. You can worship Christ, just acknowledge our God as well and all will be fine. Just work our gods in with yours. That's the way it's always been for Christians. Roman Christians, they they could say Jesus is Lord as long as they said Caesar is Lord as well. Those who did weren't thrown to the lions. Those who didn't were. And it happens today as well. One Old Testament scholar says, contemporary China permits Christians to worship freely, but only in state-sponsored and state-regulated official churches. The underground house churches remain heavily persecuted. People can serve whatever God they choose so long as it is clear that he takes second place to the state. I think one of the things that we have to come to grips with as American Christians, and I think the sooner we come to grips with this, the better, is that we need to stop thinking that we are living in some kind of uh, Christian nation. I think the sooner that we come to grips that we are living in Babylon, that we are in exile, and that whatever veneer of Christianity our society ever had, we have always lived in Babylon. All Christians in every society, in every culture, in every country, if we're not living in the new heavens and the new earth, then we are living in exile. The sooner we come to grips with that, the better. Because then we will look around at our society and expect it to look like a pagan society. And we will see ourselves as ambassadors to a better country. I remember teaching uh, at MacArthur Middle School. (coughs) This is uh, when I still thought I was maybe going to be a history teacher. Actually, doing my student teaching at MacArthur Middle School erased that. I didn't want to be a teacher anymore after that. So, uh, but uh, 
yeah, that, that quickly got rid of that notion for me. But I remember, you know, I was doing my student teaching, and I, I did a lesson on, on Alexander the Great. And, and I, I was trying to make it as interesting as possible and, and talking about all these things that I really enjoyed talking about with regard to him. And, and basically, the whole class was, had their heads down and, like, nobody cared. And, and then at one point, uh, with, with all of this, you know, nobody paying attention, I, I mentioned where Alexander the Great was on the timeline of history and, and, and used as my standard the birth of Christ. That's all I said. I said Alexander the Great lived so many years before Jesus, and immediately a hand shot up from one of the students. And I said, yeah, I called on him. I thought, well, maybe somebody's paying attention now. And the student said, you're not allowed to use that name in here. So that was my introduction to the public school. Later that afternoon, when I took my lunch break, I went into the teacher's lounge and I brought my Bible in with me, thinking that this was our time, we could use it as we wish. I saw the other teachers reading whatever they brought in, and a teacher came up to me and said, you're not allowed to read that in here. And I said, well, I'm not teaching anyone, I'm just, this is my private time. No, I'm, I'm sorry, you have to take that back out to your car. So that was my introduction to MacArthur Middle School. <clears throat> Christian... We are living in exile, but thankfully here in America at this point, we aren't in the same situation as other Christians. Back then, as we will see it, as we see here, and even today, Christians all over the world, in China, in Nigeria, I just read, a, I just read an article yesterday that something like 20,000 Christians have been killed in Nigeria because of their Christian faith. North Korea. We at this point, are probably not going to lose our freedom or our life anytime soon for being a Christian. Lastly, Christian, realize that you serve the God of heaven. One of the things that we see clearly in this passage is that though Nebuchadnezzar sets up idols, it is God who sets up kings. In Daniel chapter 2, Daniel says, blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and season. He removes kings. He sets up kings. While Nebuchadnezzar can set up however many idols he wants, he wouldn't be able to do anything unless the God of heaven had set him up and had given him power. Christian, our God reigns. Whatever our eyes tell us, Jesus has won. He is building his church. He is building his kingdom, and the gates of hell cannot prevail. He is the one, not Nebuchadnezzar, who will one day reverse the Tower of Babel. He is bringing together his kingdom of all nations, tribes, and tongues. And one day when he returns, we will gather together in his kingdom, and we will worship him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for this time, this taste of heaven. Father, thank you for gathering us together in your Son, and we pray that you would strengthen us for our journey home, that we will look to you and not to our society, and Father, help us to honor Jesus in all that we do. We pray in his name, amen.